Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 20. We're going to continue as uh, we're studying right through the book of Acts here. And as you're turning there to Acts chapter 20, you know, we're here in basically what's the final third of the book of Acts, right? As Dr. Luke records this journey of Paul to Jerusalem, where we know that he'll be arrested there and he'll stand trial there. And then, I mean, sorry, he'll be arrested in in Jerusalem and then taken to to Rome where he'll stand uh, trial. And so we're joining Paul effectively uh, kind of along the way on what we could call his farewell tour, aren't we? And specifically, the second half of this chapter is this farewell address that he makes to this group of men Um, that he'd ministered both to and that he'd ministered with there in the city of Ephesus. And as he was on his journey aboard this ship, remember he's kind of working his way back along the Mediterranean coast. Up in chapter 17, uh, we're going to jump in today at chapter 25, but back in um, in verse 17, it says that from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So his ship probably had this uh, layover for a couple days, and so he wanted to take that opportunity to really connect with and to try to minister to these dear men and to really uh, just impart to them, uh, communicate to them these final thoughts that he had, this burden of his heart. And so he calls these church elders together to give them this kind of final instruction and these words of exhortation about ministry and about serving God's people. And so what we have here that we've been looking at with Pastor Matt is this great kind of a mini-sermon, right, of the great Apostle Paul. Most of the time in the book of Acts, we see Paul the evangelist, right, as he's so powerfully proclaiming the gospel message and he's doing it to, you know, philosophers and before huge crowds and, you know, running into riots to proclaim the gospel. And yet here in Acts 20, we get this unique picture of Paul the pastor and of these things that are so important to him as a leader and as a a shepherd of God's people. And so much so that there are lots of people who refer to this text as the very first uh, first recorded pastor's conference, right? And I suppose this is probably true, and yet I I sometimes think that this description, um, I'm afraid that it could kind of have the tendency where most Christians would read this and they sort of, oh, this is for pastors, and they, they kind of quickly gloss over it and maybe they, they put it up on the shelf, you know, put away for the professionals, you know, to, to read and to study. But I just think that's such a terrible mistake because you, you understand, of course, that in the economy of the New Testament and of the local church body, we are all called, right? Each and every one of us in this room this morning, we're all called to the ministry, right? Peter writes that we are a chosen generation, right? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, and his own special people that we might proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. That's us, every one of us. And so these precious truths that we're going to see in our text today 
are so very profitable, I think, for, for all of us as we seek to, to labor effectively and to minister you know, authentically wherever it is that God has called us to do that. So I say all that to say this. Stay tuned in with me this morning, if you would, because really, aside from the teachings of the Lord Jesus in the upper room, right, that night right before he was crucified, this is perhaps the richest text in the entire New Testament that deals with ministry and that really deals with the heart behind it. And I really believe that as we look at it together, we're going to discover Paul's surprisingly simple and yet stunningly effective model for ministry. And it's one that we can use today. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless this time and then let's jump right in. Um, Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the privilege of serving you, Lord, and we thank you for the great examples that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, of course, and the way that he fulfilled his ministry, Father. And we pray that as we go to his words this morning, Lord, which we trust are your words, Lord, we pray that the, the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today, Lord, and that you would open our hearts Give us understanding, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, Pastor Matt, a couple of weeks back, covered the first part of this important message where, again, we saw the Apostle Paul calls these men to himself in verse 17. And then in verses 18 through 21, he kind of started out by reviewing his ministry there with them in Ephesus. In verse 18, he said that when they'd come, it says that when they'd come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I've always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, after reviewing his ministry, as he did there, in the next few verses, verses 22 through 25, he takes a minute to just kind of recount to them what his present situation is. In verse 22, it says, And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So now this morning, right, after kind of reviewing and after recounting. Now in verses 25 through 31, he's going to remind these men, right, of their responsibilities as they would be the ones now who would have to continue that great work that God had started through Paul. And Paul does this by kind of first remembering with them what was the core of the work that they all did together. Look at verse 25. He says, indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Now, I think that what makes Paul's statement here especially significant is when we consider it in the context of his entire three-year ministry there 
at these, uh, at, with these men at Ephesus. Paul did a lot in that city. You remember that it was in that city we've seen that, Paul, that uh, God used Paul to work some pretty amazing miracles. Remember in Acts 19 verse 11, it said that in Ephesus, the hands of Paul did unusual miracles, right? As opposed to the usual kind of everyday run-of-the-mill miracles, right? Then in verse 12, it said that in Ephesus, remember that those, the handkerchiefs and the aprons that Paul wore were brought to sick people. And remember that they were healed and they were delivered from demonic spirits. And then in verse 15, it said that it was in Ephesus again that these demonic spirits said that they knew Paul, right? And they knew Paul. They knew his ministry. And you think about these things that happened there. That's a pretty impressive body of work, not a bad resume for his time there in Ephesus. And yet with all of that, what Paul didn't say to the Ephesian elders is, you know, you all among whom I did these awesome miracles. Or he doesn't say, you know, you all among whom even the demons knew who I am. Instead, Paul was always focused on the life-transforming power of the word of God. And so what he says is, you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God. So it's, it's like Paul said, that's what I do. Yes, I do a lot of other things, but at the core, Paul says, I'm a preacher, right? And what I preach is the kingdom of God. Verse 26, he says, therefore... I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So this verse, it almost sounds like he's giving you know, witness in a, in a court of law, and he declares that his heart was clear, right? That he could leave these Christians in God's care with a good conscience, knowing that he hadn't shunned to declare to them the whole counsel of God. Now, surely, as he said this, Paul had in mind, and these men would have understood, the reference here to Ezekiel chapter 33, where at the beginning of that chapter, you know, the Lord exhorts Ezekiel about the importance, about the responsibility of the role of the watchman, right, for the security of the city. In verse 6, the Lord says, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. And then he goes on to say to Ezekiel, in verse 7, he says, So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. So Paul understood both his responsibility and he understood his calling as a watchman, right? a watchman over God's precious people. And what he wanted is that these men would understand that as well. And notice what Paul does. Notice the way that he ties this responsibility, right? He kind of links it inextricably to the declaration of the word of God, right? Not to any of the other work that he did with them, but to the preaching, to the teaching, to the declaring of God's word. So in the world of Christian workers, what we need today are more and more pastors and more and more people 
who have this same heart, right? Who will simply present the whole counsel of God. And, and you know that in a later letter that Paul would write to Timothy, remember he would warn, he says that in the last days the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Right? He says that people aren't going to want to hear the truth, and so they're going to look around and they're going to raise up for themselves teachers who will tell them the things that they want to hear, right? who will kind of scratch their itching ears. Can you even imagine such a time? What that might be like? Lynn gets me. She always does. God bless her. It's so sad. Of course, we're seeing this come to be a reality today, right? So many preachers, and I will say this, so many of them very sincere, right? Super well-intentioned men who simply use the Bible. They'll use a Bible text as a launching pad, right? And then they'll, they'll launch off to say whatever it is they want, right? Whatever it is the people want to hear, right? Preaching a, a gospel of self help or self-actualization, right? And there's others who simply throw in some Bible quotations to illustrate their points, right? Or maybe to, to punctuate their own stories, right? As they maybe preach themselves and try to draw a following after themselves. And it's, it's hard because we sit back and we scratch our heads and we wonder, why would they even go down this road? When the Lord has promised us so clearly To Isaiah, right, in Isaiah 55, God said what? He said that my word, he said that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper the thing for which I sent it. So the promise of the power is for whose words? His words, not our words. Right? And so it's so simple, but the, the true real calling of any preacher or any teacher of the Bible is simply to let the Bible speak for itself. Right? Let it declare its own power because it is powerful. It's so powerful when it's taught systematically and when it's taught completely. Right? You're all familiar with the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon, one of his most famous quotes, he was apparently asked how he could defend the Bible. And his response, of course, was defend it. He said, I'd just as soon defend a lion. He says, unchain it and it will defend itself. Right? Just teach it. Just teach it and then allow the spirit to use it to work in the hearts of the people. You know, again, when we looked at Acts 19, you'll remember... In verses 9 and 10, it tells us that Paul taught the Ephesians, right? He taught the people in that region for more than two years using this little room he was renting from the school of Tyrannus. And there are some indications that Paul would teach these guys for several hours a day, right? Probably six days a week. And if you do the math, which I did in advance because I'm not real good with numbers on the fly, but if you do the math, what that means We're talking about literally hundreds of hours of teaching time, probably more than 1,500 hours that he had to teach them. Imagine the things that they would have covered. 
You know, Paul would have had plenty of time to take them literally line by line through the books of the Hebrew scriptures, right? Drawing out for them and explaining to them the way that all of these scriptures had this beautiful prophetic fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, right? They would have had time to look at some of these more complex and seemingly confusing prophecies, right? To look at the truth of the disobedience of Israel, to look at the way they were chastised and the way that they finally rejected their Messiah. And no doubt, there were many of these 1,500 hours that were probably potentially difficult for these guys, right? Difficult as their own sin was revealed, as the word was exposing personally, but also for those who had been Jews, the word was exposing nationally, their sin before their very eyes. And you'll know, you know, Paul would write later to the Hebrews, he says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, so as difficult as any of these, this teaching might have been for them, it was necessary, wasn't it? And the temptation, I think, at times for teachers and and for Christian workers and maybe even for some of us as parents is that we only want to share on certain topics, certain subjects, right? And I understand that, right? There are parts of the Bible that we'd rather not teach, and there are issues in the Bible with which we would rather not have to deal, but we need to have and we need to declare what? the full counsel of God. And that's why it's so necessary for all Christians to know all of the Bible, right? From cover to cover, right? And for churches to go through the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, not skipping over any parts, right? Dealing with every book, studying every chapter. Because what we can trust is that the Bible is put together, it's written in such a way that it contains the perfect proportion of encouragement and exhortation, right? If we just let it stand on its own. And I will tell you that we are all so richly blessed to be part of a church movement and to be part of a local church body that studies the entire word of God systematically. Now, before we move on, I do think it's important. If we're going to take this testimony of Paul's at full strength, right, that, that, that he's basing his clear conscience on the single fact that he hadn't failed to declare to them the full counsel of God, what that means on the opposite side is that we'd have to say that, that those people, right, preachers, teachers, workers, those people who fail deliberately to declare the whole counsel of God, those people are actually guilty of the blood of all men. That's sobering, isn't it? So those people who preach and teach only the things that their audiences want to hear and are not preaching and teaching the full counsel of God, they're hurting both themselves and their audiences. So this was, this was a very serious business for Paul. And so we see him next, not surprisingly, he's just declared, right, the way that he personally fulfilled this weighty responsibility. And now he turns to exhort these Ephesian elders 
about their own responsibility to do the same thing. Look at verse 28. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So these men had a responsibility, right? It was to care for the church, to shepherd the flock, to serve their own church congregations as faithful pastors. And the primary responsibility, Paul says, behind being a shepherd is to feed God's people. Right? One Bible expositor writes this. He says they are to be shepherds of God's church. In the Greek, it's poimanino, meaning in general to tend a flock and in particular to lead a flock to pasture and so to feed it. This is the first duty of shepherds. And in fact, don't raise your hands, but if there's any of you out there who are so super smart that you're reading the King James Version, you'll see between the thous and therefores and haths that this verse is actually rendered that these men should feed the church of God. The only way that the sheep will be healthy and that the flock will grow and that the church with a capital C, church, the only way that it will expand is if we as the sheep are being fed consistently and are being fed faithfully because when sheep are properly fed, they will reproduce very naturally. And isn't that what we want? We want more sheep and more sheep and more sheep who can go out and do the work of the ministry. Again, not for the church with a little c, Regeneration Calvary Chapel, right? Church with the big C, the body of Christ, is what we're talking about. So the greatest need for the church today is for people to be fed by faithful shepherds who won't fail to declare the full counsel of God. I'm absolutely convinced, and I I hope that you are too this morning, that the way to spiritual maturity and the way to spiritual health is studying the Bible, right? Book by book, chapter by chapter. And, And I would encourage you to take a minute and look around yourself this morning because I'm confident that what you're going to find is that the people whom you most admire and respect here for their Christian character and their Christian testimony, that each of those people have one thing in common. And what that is, is it's a a history of the habit of sitting under the systematic study of the scriptures. Right? They have this habit of ingesting God's word and of assimilating it into their lives and then pouring it out into others. So pray with me that the church, with a big C, right, would be so blessed by shepherds who would just feed them the word of God and who will consistently exemplify and model their faith. Because notice in that verse that Paul kind of extends or he expands this exhortation, reminding them that shepherds don't only feed, but shepherds also, what, they lead, right? And a good and a godly leader knows that good, effective leadership flows from a life, right? Not just from knowledge. So Paul says, look, pay attention to your own lives. He says, you've got this high standard to fulfill. It's not a standard of perfection, but nevertheless, it's high. And Paul says, look, you're not going to fulfill that standard without paying attention to it and without taking heed to yourselves. And you'll notice that I sort of took these verses out of order on purpose 
so that we could note the order that Paul puts them in, right? This exhortation that Paul's making here is specific to these Ephesian elders, but it absolutely can rightly and safely be applied for all of us. So, elders, pastors, teachers, workers, parents, Christians. Did I leave anybody out? Okay, so everybody, let me encourage you this morning. Let me encourage all of us. Take heed to yourself first. And you're thinking, wow, me first? (laughs) I love it. Right? I'm glad I came down this morning in the rain. No, you've missed it completely, right? (laughs) So, So the point isn't put yourself first, right? The point is make sure that you are cultivating this a personal devotional life. Make sure that you're a man or a woman of prayer. Make sure that you're one who's engaged in this consistent communion with the Lord personally, right? Take heed to yourself so that you have something to give away to others. And I'm making a point of this simply because there's a great danger that I've only heard about. But the danger is, when you get involved in Christian service, you can suddenly find yourself, you know, you're serving unto the Lord, and you're doing the work of the Lord, but you're doing it at your own, the expense of your own personal walk with the Lord. Right? Because true ministry is always an overflow of the things that are taking place in your life personally, and the things that the Lord is doing in you secretly, and the work that he's working in you intimately. So if you want to be effective, and I know you guys, and I know that there's so many people here this morning that do, if you want to be effective, take heed to yourself. Right? Make sure first that you're personally cultivating that walk with the Lord. Right? Take heed to yourself first and then to the flock, because if you're in right relationship with the Lord, then blessings will flow out through you, won't they? They'll flow out to the flock of your family, right? To the flock of the Sunday school kids that you teach, right? To those people with whom you work and to whom you're desperately trying to witness, right? Take heed to yourselves and to the flock, Paul wrote, right? Not because the priority should be on self, right? But because that proper preparation of self is going to allow you to be used to see those around you blessed by Jesus. And isn't that the point of ministry? Isn't that why we do what we do? Right? It's so important, folks. It's so important, this work that we're all engaged in, right? this work of the church. Right? Let me encourage you today, never underestimate the great importance of the church. Right? The church is important to God the Father, because his name is on it, isn't it? Notice in Paul's reference there in that verse, he calls it the church of God. It's important to God. It's important, obviously, to the Son, Jesus, because he shed his blood to purchase it. Right? The church is important to the Holy Spirit because he's working presently to call and to equip and to raise up people to work within it. It's a serious thing to be a spiritual leader, to be a worker, to be a witness in the church of the living God. It's a very serious thing for all of us to take care of something that's not our own. It's something that was purchased, purchased by the blood of Jesus, and it belongs to him, doesn't it? And certainly any any responsible person is going to take better care of something that belongs to somebody else. 
So let us all remember whether we're preaching or whether we're teaching or whether we're leading or working or witnessing or whether we're praying or whether we're cleaning up the coffee urns, right? Let's remember that the church belongs to Jesus Christ and considering the greatness of the price that he paid for it, right? We as God's people are called to be dedicated and to be very careful and godly in the way that we handle the things of God. And especially, Paul says, we need to be careful. Because as we see, he continues in these next verses, he's going to get kind of right to the heart of the need for that command to the elders to guard themselves and the flock. We need to take heed to the flock, Paul says, because of dangers that are going to come from the outside. Look at verse 29. Paul says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul's kind of pressing this sense of urgency here, right? He's warning these leaders that there are savage wolves that will come in, right? He knew that a pastor, a leader of any kind among God's people needs to do more than just feed and lead, but they also need to protect, right? Protect the flock against dangerous People And here specifically, Paul's talking about these false teachers, right, counterfeits that would try to come in and exploit the church for their own personal gain. The very same people that Jesus warned us about in Matthew chapter 7, where he said that beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, he says, they are ravenous wolves. And he says that you'll know them by their fruits. So with these misplaced motives, right? These false teachers are there to take from instead of giving to the body of Christ. And Bible scholar uh, Barclay makes this observation. He says that the basic fault of the false prophet is self-interest. It can be expressed by a desire for gain or for an easy life, a desire for prestige or the desire to advance one's own ideas and not God's ideas. So you can always recognize wolves because rather than feed the flock, they fleece the flock, right? A wolf in sheep's clothing, they look like a sheep, right? They probably smell like a sheep. They might even sound like a sheep. But the only difference between a sheep and a wolf who's wearing sheep's clothing is their diet because wolves eat sheep, don't they? Right? And you can always identify when you see a wolf because inevitably there's probably sheep carcasses in their wake. Right? So again, it's so important that we as believers know the word of God and that we're able to de- detect and defeat these you know, sort of religious racketeers because Paul says that these wolves, when they come in, look what he says there. He says they're going to be vicious. Right? They're not going to be the nice kind of little wolves, right? These are not Disney wolves. These are vicious wolves, right? He's talking here again about these individuals who won't hold back taking advantage of the people of God but are going to try to take out as many as they can. So we need to take heed to the flock, right? There's dangers from the outside. But Paul continues now. He says we need to take heed to the flock also because there are dangers from the inside. Verse 30, he says that from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things 
to draw away the disciples after themselves. So he says, not only will wolves come from the outside, right, and sneak their way in, he says, but perverse men will stir things up from inside. And unlike these ravenous wolves from the outside, he's now talking about people within the church, people who are probably ambitious for position and for power, right? The very same people, remember the Apostle John in his final letter to the church. This is in the first century, right? The, the infant church, he warns them saying, he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words. And what's so unfortunate is you don't have to read too much of church history, right? Ancient church history or even modern church history to see that it's filled with accounts of people just like this who like to have the preeminence, right? It's so sad, I think, to realize, too, that more than one false prophet got their start within the Christian church family. And I'll say this, it's often, it's, it's easier for pastors to deal with the wolves that come in from the outside, right? Those obviously false teachings, right? Those goofy winds of barking in the spirit, you know, the doctrine that sweeps through the church. But what's so often much more difficult is to deal with those who rise up from among yourselves, right? Because so often it's dear friends. So often it's even family. You know, think with me about the story from 2 Samuel chapters 14 and 15. You remember when King David was in the palace, right? He's in the palace conducting the affairs of state. Remember that his son Absalom, right, he was sitting just outside by the gate. And Absalom, as people would try to come see King David, Absalom would say, oh, King David doesn't really have time for you, does he? said, you know, if I were on the throne, right, he says, things would be different. He said, if I were on the throne, you know, your needs would be met and, and your voice, he says, would be heard. And of course, you guys are Bible students, you know the story, right? Absalom used this method to launch this full-scale rebellion against his father and eventually drove him out of his position and out of the palace, and, and oh, how the enemy will use a person's pride and exploit it so that he can get inside, right, and start to sow division, right, and disrupt the unity of the fellowship of a group of people, especially a local church body, right? Stories just like this one from Second Samuel are all too common. And, and they're not just in the pages of Old Testament history, are they? But they're in the records and they're in the board meeting minutes of so many churches, right? And don't forget, these are the very same bodies that are so precious to the Lord and these very same groups of people that were purchased at such a high price, right? It's no wonder that Paul is so passionate about this and says in verse 31, he says, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Right? Beware. He says, be careful about these dangers and the damage that they'll do to the local church. And this is, an, I think, an important verse, especially in this sort of current 
cultural climate that we live in, right, of tolerance and of, of political correctness. But notice that Paul not only fed the flock, but he also warned them. And it says he did it night and day, and it says he did it with tears. And, and so, too, in our families or in our ministries, if we just feed them but we don't warn them, what are we doing? We're just fattening them up for the kill, aren't we? And the fact is that, spiritually speaking, there are dangerous doctrines. There are false teachers who, who damage God's people and lead them astray and, and, and take them away with the promise of you know, a, a better, more authentic worship experience. Or they lead them away and they take them away you know, with the promise of a more positive and a more affirming, accepting church culture. And I want to say this, the church should surely be all of those things. But we can't be those things at the expense of truth, as it's declared in the full counsel of God. And so we need to have the courage to, to deal with these things. You know, living here kind of nestled where we do in the hills, you know, some of us share our backyards sometimes with the surrounding nature, right? And, and it's so much so that it seems like stories of, you know, mountain lion sightings in particular are pretty common. I guess there were some just last week up on the west side by the college. And so we see these posts come up, and, and each one of them, it comes with the last known location of this animal so that people can stay away, right? And so people can stay safe. And suppose, though, that you read one of these posts, and it said, you know, hey, there's a full-grown mountain lion. He's lurking around town, and we know exactly where he is. But we don't want to offend anyone and we don't want to frighten anyone unnecessarily, so we're not going to be too specific about telling you where this animal is. right? If you read that, you'd think that they'd lost their minds, right? that they were crazy. And so why is there this tendency in the ministry to say, look, there's some general things we should watch out for, but I don't want to name any names. Right? I don't want to get too specific about it because I don't want people to say that I'm not very loving. Now, we don't need to say nasty things about the mountain lion, right? We just need to let people know where he is. You remember that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right, to Timothy, Paul named names. He talked about people that were endangering the people of God. And so, too, we shouldn't ever be judgmental. We shouldn't ever be condemning. But we do need to be watchful. And we do need to be analytical for the purpose of of protection and correction, right? Mainly so that those who are brand new in their faith don't get mauled and eaten up, right, by the enemy. Paul was asking these guys to have this same bold, uncompromising, careful concern for the people of God, just like he did. And with that, he says in verse 32, he says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, though Paul had given everything he had, right, to these Ephesians, you know, these Christians for some three years, at the end of the day, what could he do? All he could do was entrust them to God. And I think that's a great reminder, you know, for all of us. The same is true of our kids. The same is true of the people that we serve you know, we can feed and we can warn and we can love them, but ultimately all we can say is, 
God, they're yours. Amen? You know, Paul knew that there was trouble ahead. He knew there was trouble ahead for himself. He knew there was trouble ahead for these Ephesian Christians. And yet what he was confident of in the face of that trouble is that God and his word would safely see them through those things. And did you notice the pairing there, right? Faith in God is absolutely essential, but it has to be combined with obedience to his word because that's the thing that's going to build us up, right? And Paul says, provide us with this inheritance in heaven, right? Programs can't do it, and the spirit of the age can't do it, and great marketing materials and websites can't do it, and great entertainment can't do it. Only God's word can do it. So let's not fail either to take note of that one little word. What's that little word that Paul adds there which describes the word of God so well? It's grace, isn't it? Because ultimately grace is the thing that builds us up. You know, so so often in ministry or in service or in parenting or in discipling we can tend to emphasize what we should do rather than what God has already done, right? We'll be looking at this together after the first of the year on Wednesday nights, but we'll see that in the book of Ephesians, right, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul really focuses in on, he really stresses the behavior of the believer. But that wasn't till after He'd spent all of chapters 1 through 3 telling us that we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, right? Telling us that we're in Christ, reminding us that we've been adopted and that we're being sanctified, right? Paul speaks of the things that God has done before he talks about the things that we should do. Always remember, chapters 1 through 3 come before chapters 4 through 6, Amen? That's profound. I know. Write that down. But that's, I'm going to have T-shirts maybe that, that say that. That would be a good T-shirt. You know, I, I can certainly, I can say to my kids, I can say to the, the people that I'm ministering to, you know, you need to read your Bible and you need to worship and you need to pray. And, and they would probably do it, right? Because I told them to. At least they do it for a couple of days. Amen? I'm looking at somebody specifically because I love them. But it's only once they begin to understand, right? When they begin to understand the way that they're loved unconditionally, and when they really begin to understand that they're seated in Christ eternally, right? And they begin to understand that their sins, right? Their sins past, present, and future. And they understand that those things are washed away completely. Then they'll read, Right? And then they'll study, and then they'll worship, and then they'll pray, and they'll witness, and they'll serve. And they'll do it not because they have to, but they'll do it because they want to. Right? They'll do it because they get to. And they'll do it because they know they've been given this great inheritance. And in case you've forgotten, I want to remind you this morning that the inheritance which is waiting for you, right, and the inheritance which even now we can begin to enjoy in Christ, that inheritance is incredibly wonderful. Right? And we, we can't ever allow anything 
to obscure that fact. And, and Paul said here to these men, right, he knew they were going to go through troubles and difficulties and challenges. He said to them the very same thing he would say to us today, remember the inheritance that's yours. Right? Keep focused. Keep centered on those things that are eternal. And Paul could say that. Why? Paul could say that because he lived it. So now he finishes this, right, referring to the attitude that he had as he served among these people. He said in verse 33, he said, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul concludes here, right, trying to communicate his heart, right, trying to communicate what was his motive for ministry. He wasn't in it for himself. He wasn't certainly in it for his own glory, but he was in it for God's glory. And he was in it for the the building up of God's people. And these parting words of his, right, he takes from a quote of Jesus's, which though is unrecorded, in any of the four Gospels, it was part of the earliest oral traditions of the church, and Paul had committed it to memory. And, and these words, I think, are perfect for us, right, for any of us who have a heart to minister to God's people. Many people say that these words of Jesus, right, where he said it is more blessed to give than to receive, they say that it's the best beatitude of all the beatitudes, right? If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us how to be blessed, right? He said, blessed are the, and he gives us all the, the ways to be blessed. Here he tells us how to be more blessed, right? And I think we could probably properly paraphrase it like this. It's better to share with others than to keep what you have and collect more. And I think that's good paraphrase because it kind of sheds some light on the issue for us, especially in the context this morning, that true blessing doesn't come in accumulating wealth, but in sharing it. And looking the way you look throughout Paul's ministry, you see that Paul didn't ever want gifts for himself. He wanted fruit for the believers who were giving those gifts. Right? To the Philippians, he writes of their faithful giving. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Paul sought the fruit that abounds to the account of the believers. See, whenever you give to support a ministry, whatever God does through that ministry, where does that, you know, it goes to your account, and it goes there eternally. That's why giving is such a great deal, especially considering God gives us the money in the first place, right? This is not the giving talk, but I will say this. When you give your tithes and your offerings here, you're not simply giving to keep the lights on and to keep the rent paid. What you're enabling this ministry to do is to touch lives in ways I'm not sure that we really realize, right? Because you're helping to plant churches in Capitola, right? Churches on the west side of Santa Cruz, as well as establishing flourishing ministries in Peru and in El Salvador, and to support growing and godly ministries in the Philippines. And for years before that in India, in, in different parts in the 1040 window. You know, you're going to support the work of those who are fighting for the unborn and those who are 
struggling to regain their lives from the clutches of addiction. And all of those things, right, are outside of and are beyond the many marriages that are healed and the relationships that are restored and the families that are encouraged and the individuals that are discipled and the lives that are impacted right here in this room. And just on the other side of that wall, each week as the word of God is faithfully taught and as people are coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and eternal destinies are forever changed. That's what we do here, guys. And it's, it's real, and it's eternal, and it's real fruit to your accounts eternally. Just imagine the impact that you're having in ways you couldn't even imagine simply through your sacrificial giving. And, and Paul's point here, in a much broader context, even than just financial stewardship, is that without the heart of sacrifice, there really can never be any effective eternal ministry okay but it should be such a glad sacrifice shouldn't it knowing how blessed people are by it i will say this that ministry of any sort is a sacrifice because ministry is messy isn't it because so often when we're ministering it involves allowing ourselves to be inserted into the messiest situations of people's lives and then allowing ourselves to stand in the gap for them and, and to bear with them and then to proclaim truth to them during those dark times. It's messy and yet isn't it so worth it? When we stop and we take a moment to uh, take a brief inventory of the ways that the Lord has worked through each one of us and the way that it reaches so far beyond just our lives. It truly is more blessed to give than to receive, right? True ministry is always about giving and not getting, right? It's about following the example of the Lord Jesus. Verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. I guess so, huh? Do you see the way that they loved Paul? I love that because it reminds me that he wasn't simply like a, a cold dispenser of doctrine, right? He wasn't simply the writer of most of the New Testament. But he was a warm and a pastoral man who loved these precious people greatly, and he won great love from them as a result. He had not failed to declare to them the whole counsel of God, and they loved him for it. Right? He'd not failed to love them as Jesus loved them, and they wept freely as he was leaving them. He fed them, and he loved them. And that, to me, sounds like a pretty great model for ministry, doesn't it? Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you, Lord, you give us the privilege of partnering with you, Lord, and ministering in ways that we can't even imagine. Father, that you enable and that you equip us 
for service, Lord, and then you reward us for those things that we do in your name. Father, we pray now that you would just write these truths deeply in our hearts, Lord, as we just reflect on the encouragement, Lord, the exhortation given by the Apostle, Lord. I pray you'd speak these things to our hearts now as we worship, Lord. In your name, amen.